morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see you here. Um, I just want you to know that the 20 people that were here last week get gold stars. <laughs> the rest of you, well, that's between you and the Lord. So our key scripture this morning comes from John chapter 15, starting verse 18. So if you uh, have your Bibles there, I invite you uh, to open up to that, and I'll be reading that for you this morning. John 15, 18 through 24. Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. I know that I've uh, shared this with you before, but growing up in Fresno, um, I was a Lakers fan as a kid. And uh, it was the local uh, basketball, well, not local, it was in L.A., we were in Fresno, but it was the basketball team that was covered in the local paper most often, and it was the Showtime Lakers, and I was just a huge Lakers fan. Um, So it was the era of Magic Johnson, James Worthy, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, A.C. Green, Byron Scott, Michael Cooper, Michael Thompson, and all these guys. I had t-shirts, I had posters, I was sold out for the Lakers, and When I say that I was a Lakers fan, I mean that I absolutely loved everything about them. And because I was a Lakers fan, it meant that I was contractually obligated to hate the Celtics. (laughs) Not dislike the Celtics, but hate the Celtics. I thought Larry Bird was the ugliest man alive, and... Objectively, he kind of is. I refused to wear the color green. I had a very basic and fundamental understanding of the world at a time, and that was if you were a Lakers fan, you could not be a Celtics fan. There was no way to even appreciate them in any way, shape, or form because you could not be one and be the other. They played against one another for championships three out of four years in a row, and the Lakers won two of those. The Celtics, of course, won the other, but they also won the championship the year that the Lakers didn't make it to the finals, and I hated them for that. Uh, There was no way to rectify this divide in my young brain, and I have since come to peace with this through uh, medication and therapy, but, uh, you know, things things work over time. There is a truth that is found in the words of Jesus that can be difficult for us to accept. And we might think that we grasp it, but I am not sure that we do. Jesus 
says things very clearly, though, in this passage so that there is not a lot of room for us to misunderstand what it is that he means. And here's what he says. He says that the world hates him. And he says that because the world hates him, they hate his father as well. And they, then he says that because the world hates him and hates the father, that the world will also hate anyone who claims him. There is not middle ground. There is not room to negotiate. Jesus makes it very clear in an uncomfortable way for us that the world stands in opposition to him. That the world does not value the things that Jesus values. It does not stand for the same things that Jesus stands for. The world, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, feels threatened by Jesus, and rightfully so. And the world wanted to do away with him entirely. The world hates Jesus, but Jesus does not hate the world. The world thinks he does because Jesus refuses to support everything that the world stands for and values. He won't tell the world that they are okay just as they are and because he won't do these things, he must hate them and not love them. But Jesus, church, could not love the world any more deeply than he does. And he refuses to let the world fall under the weight of its own shortcomings. The reason why we know Jesus as we do is because he loves the world. Just as his father loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Don't confuse the issue. Jesus has not made the world his enemy. The world has made Jesus its enemy. And there are big implications to all of this if we can walk down that road. Not the least of which is that if you align yourself with Jesus, you put yourself in opposition to this world. And what strikes me about that this morning and as I have been looking at these verses and praying over these things this week is whether or not we are prepared for the world to actively hate us. Whether we are prepared to be unpopular because of the truth that we believe. Are we ready to speak the truth to a world that doesn't want it? Are we ready to stand up and testify to the story of Jesus in this place? Are you willing, are you willing to, in the name of Jesus, put yourself in opposition to the world? So, I have to just tell you that I'm really challenged by the words that Jesus said in John chapter 15. And there, there are a lot of things that Jesus says that challenges me and that causes me to reflect on 
who I am and what I'm doing and how I'm living my life, but there was, there's just something about that message uh, that, Jesus, that Jesus gave. That the world hates him, that the world hates his father, and that anyone who is on the side of Jesus will find that the world will hate them as well. Um, and it got me to thinking a little bit about how we view the world around us. So let me just kind of ask you a quick question this morning, and um, there is no right answer to this question, um, unless it's the wrong one, but you'll know, you'll know what that is. But just take a second, and I want you to turn to whoever's around you and answer this question just very briefly. When you look at the world around you, and in particular, uh, as Jesus has been talking, let's give this some context here, where um, he's, he speaks specifically about those who are with him and with the Father. And when he talks about the world, the world is anyone who is not with Jesus or with the Father. Okay? So, when you look at the world around you, what do you see? Okay? Pretty simple question. So take a moment, turn to someone next to you and answer that question. When you look at the world around you, what do you see? Ready, Go. All right. So someone, uh, someone, you can just you can just shout it out. When you look at the world around you, what do you see? Confusion, false beliefs. Okay. What else? Self-absorption. Okay. Chaos. Despair. Fear. What's that? Love. Okay. What's that? Good people. Okay. Good. We're covering we're covering a spectrum here. What do you say, Dev? Okay, a lot of beauty in the world. Okay, good. Um, so I like that because we we kind of covered a pretty wide spectrum there in terms of what we can see when we look at the world around us. And so let's let's look at this on a on a couple of different levels here, really quick. Um, Clearly, we can look at the world around us and see lots of different things. Uh, but when we're talking about sort of those that are with God and with Christ and those that are not with God or Christ, how do we look at that? And as I was just reading through uh, different things this week, I, I looked a lot at how Christianity itself is sort of communicating, communicating to the world around us. And we, we talked several weeks ago about how we are sort of at this crucial time in our country where we're not really able to sit down and have conversations, polite conversations, with people that we disagree with. And the model that is being 
displayed for us kind of in several different public corners is that if you disagree with someone on something, then they are wrong and you need to do everything you can to prove that they are wrong. And if they still don't agree with you, just call them names. And that solves the problem. Um, which I seem to remember back when I was like, I don't know, five, that I was told calling other people names was not the answer to the problem, but maybe you know, the world has just progressed. Um, so there are different things that we can see when we look at the world, and in particular as Christians, there are different ways we can communicate about what the world is. So there are two, let's just look at two ends of this spectrum. There are some who are Christians that when they look at the world, they basically see the world as a place where there is nothing redeeming about it. Where all of the things that are going on in culture and society, that all of these things are not of God, and because they're not of God, they are destructive, and, and the world is just a bad, terrible, evil place. So that's one end of this. On the other end of this spectrum, there are people who are with God and on God's side that when they look at the world, they actually don't see a lot of things that are wrong. They see good people who are living good lives, and they may or may not have God, but they're still living this sort of good, decent existence. So if these are both ends of the spectrum here, what do we do? And, and so this is the question that, that came up, and I know I'm not explaining this very well, but just hang out with me here for a minute. It got me thinking about the words of Jesus. It got me thinking about the way that we as Christians communicate to the world around us, and it got me asking these questions. How should I see the world? How should I, what eyes do I need to use when I look at it? And more than that, how should Christianity look to a world that is ultimately going to hate it? Does that question make sense? You with me? So if we see that there are different ways that we can communicate about faith, on one end being the world is evil and you all stink, and on the other end being, well, you're kind of okay, but you should really have Jesus. What is it that we should look like and take out into this place? Jesus made it very clear, very, very clear, that he stood against the values of this world, and it was because he stood against the values of this world that the world hated him. He also made it clear that anyone who stood with him, again, was going to become an enemy of the world. And maybe, I, maybe we have made a mistake historically as Christians in thinking that the world should approve of us as Christians. Maybe we've made a mistake in thinking that, that the values that we uphold as followers of Jesus are the same values that everyone else should uphold when Jesus tells us actually they don't want any of that. Now, would we like for this world 
to reflect the values that we uphold in Jesus. Absolutely. But there's something hard about what Jesus says, which is what? If you uphold the values of God in Jesus, then where will you find yourself? In opposition to the world. So, what does that mean and what does that look like? And what should it look like? Well, I've told you this before, but a former church that I worked with, we formed an outreach team. And uh, this outreach team, their job was to do different things for the community and to go out and to share the gospel, but there was just one problem. The outreach team couldn't agree on what outreach meant. And there was one person on the team who said, you know, we really share Jesus with other people by doing things for them. And so we need to serve people, we need to give uh, food to those who are hungry and clothing to those who don't have clothes. We need to do all these things, but we should never mention Jesus. Because if we mention Jesus, then we may turn them off and we may lose the opportunity to have a relationship with them. And on the other side of that spectrum was someone else who said, well, I don't think we should do anything without mentioning Jesus. And we need to be really direct and we need to talk with people about where they are and if they have Jesus in their life and what they need. So these are all people in the same church community and they couldn't agree on what it was supposed to look like for that church to go out and speak to others or share Jesus with others. So I share that with you just to say that this issue is complicated. What should faith look like? What should Christianity look like? What should our testimony look like to this world? Let me give you another example. I had a friend at this church. His name was Jeremy. And Jeremy loved to talk about his faith. You could not keep him from talking about his faith. And he worked for this big company and while he was at work or doing something, he got into a conversation with someone about Jesus. That person filed a complaint with uh, the HR group there to say this person was being pushy about his faith and talking about things that I didn't want to talk about. So he got called in and he was reprimanded. He wasn't fired, but he was given uh, a warning and there was something on his record and he was talked to about it. Okay? Now, here's what's funny about Jeremy. There were people in our church that were also uncomfortable with how much Jeremy talked about his faith. Because he talked about it so much to everyone, no matter where he was or what he was doing, that there were lots of people who didn't know how to handle him talking about Jesus to anyone and everyone. How do you feel about that? It's strange, and yet it doesn't actually surprise me all that much. It really doesn't. Because, why? Why? I mean, it, I, think it's, I think it's because we don't know 
or practice how to talk about Jesus with other people. Um, and maybe it's because we think, well, I should do really good things for them, but if I mention Jesus, I might lose them. And I don't want to offend or turn someone off. And so sometimes when, when we have this sort of view and, and we meet someone who has the, well, Jesus needs to be in everything conversation, with, it's uncomfortable. And, and we don't know what to do with those people. And so as weird as it sounds saying it out loud, it actually doesn't surprise me all that much. So I have a definition for you that I don't particularly like. Um, and I would like to be wrong about this. But here it is. I think this is, this is a definition that has been adopted by a lot of people when it comes to being a Christian. And here it is. Being a Christian means that you follow Jesus without stepping on anyone else's toes. Um, Christianity can still be talked about, but only in the stream of sort of global consciousness in which we talk about all religions. And when you cross the line, you become sort of a caricature of what a Christian is. Do you know what I mean by that? Um, try it sometime. <laughs> Start talking about Jesus or talking about your faith. And if you're with someone that you've never had that kind of conversation with before and they're not totally comfortable with it, you find that you are going to slip into this, oh, I know what you're like or I know who you are or I know what you're about because you're now talking about Jesus. Now, I'm a pastor, so I've experienced this like on steroids. Right? I, I have. Like, so we make friends with the boys' parents at school, and you get into that conversation like, uh, hey, so what do you do? And I'm like, hey, I work for a church. And all of a sudden, it's like all the words in their brains have just dissipated. <laughs> and the reason why that happens is because they're now evaluating everything they've ever said to me. <laughs> Did I curse in front of you? Did I say this or did I do that? You know, did I? Because they immediately think that because I'm a pastor that they know what I'm like, how I'm going to treat them, and they immediately assume one really key thing, that I am doing what? That I am judging them as if, you know, they're figure skaters on the ice and I'm holding up a scorecard, right? I'm the Russian judge, so I'm always tough on you being the Russian judge. And I think that sometimes in our eagerness to avoid that stigma, we have avoided any sort of confrontation with others. And here's what we do instead. We wait for the perfect moment as if, and this, may, this can happen, it's not like it doesn't, as if someone will just walk up to you and say, would you tell me about Jesus now? Because we are afraid of offending people and let's be honest, like we want the gospel to be unoffensive. 
So I hope that there's parts of that that are not true, but at the same time, I know that it's true. We've been studying the Holy Spirit, and Jesus had promised that the paraclete was coming. He will be the presence of God with his disciples. He will do all of the same kinds of things that Jesus has done. They will not be alone. They will not be orphans. The, the Spirit will be their teacher and remind them of everything that Jesus had said. And as we talked about two weeks ago, the Spirit will testify to the world The Spirit will testify to the world about what God is doing, but if you remember, there's a second part of it too. The Spirit will also testify to who? Do you remember? It's been two weeks. To the hearts of the disciples themselves. And why was the Spirit going to testify to the hearts of the disciples themselves? Because what did they need to know? That Jesus was true. That everything that had happened was true that he really is the Son of God, that he really was here to redeem the world from their sin. And so ultimately, the product of all all of this is that the disciples were going to find themselves in this place where they were going to have to make a choice. Would they stand up to the world that had just crucified Jesus and testify to the truth of who Jesus is? Or would they take a pass on that? To not put themselves in a place of opposition to the world that had killed the Son of God. We see this in John chapter 15, verses 26 through 27. If you have your Bibles uh, here this morning, we are going to be in John uh, chapters 15 and 16. The verses will also be on the screen behind me this morning. So from John chapter 15, starting in verse 26... When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus is trying to, again, remember, like the disciples don't quite get it. They don't quite understand what's going to happen. And again, in their defense, there's really, it would be difficult (laughs) for them to fully realize what it is that is coming their way, but Jesus has been talking to them and trying to get them on board. He wants them to be prepared. He wants them to know what's coming their way. And he knows that these men are going to have to stand up and testify, that they are going to have to speak the truth about all that they had seen and heard, and they were the most qualified to stand up and talk about Jesus because they had spent all of this time with Jesus. They knew him better than perhaps anyone into a world that was going to hear this message from them, Jesus had said, again, this world is going to hate you and it's going to throw you out and maybe even kill you because you are going to have to stand up and speak the truth and the world doesn't want to hear the truth. It doesn't want to hear the truth. And Peter, in fact, in the room at the time, fails the first test. When Jesus is being crucified and he finds himself by the fire and someone says, don't you know Jesus? No. Are you sure you don't know Jesus? Yes. But I swear I saw you with Jesus. No, it was not me. And when they finally did stand up and testify, 
would their testimony be enough to convince the world of the truth? You tell me. Is it enough to tell someone about who Jesus is? Does testimony, even heart-filled and passionate testimony, ensure that someone will hear the gospel and believe? Does it? No. No. Uh, Tim Woodruff, in his book on the Holy Spirit, says, Testimony alone only makes the world angry, only increases its resistance. And he makes an important point to us when we think about what this testimony, what testifying looks like. And what he says is that the story sometimes may not be enough. In fact, it oftentimes may not be enough because are you ready for this? Something has to happen besides you telling someone about Jesus. Let me say that one more time. Something has to happen besides you telling someone about Jesus. So what is that something that has to happen? If only Jesus would tell us what that something is. Well, I have good news for you, dear friends. He, in fact, does. Because he knows that the disciples can testify and they can speak the truth to a hard-hearted world, but they cannot make that heart vulnerable. They cannot, on their own, find the crack in the armor. They cannot convince the world and make it contrite. So what is going to make the difference then? What do you think? It's going to be the Holy Spirit. And we've, we talked about this passage very briefly, but Jesus says something that, again, is still pretty shocking and revolutionary here in John chapter 16, starting in verse 4. And here's what he says. He says, I have told you this so that when their hour comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, these words are crazy to me because, and we talked about this a little bit again, but it's, it's shocking to think based on the lack of importance we've given to the Holy Spirit that Jesus says, I need to get out of the way so that the Holy Spirit can come. Because if we had to choose between the Holy Spirit and Jesus being here with us, what would we choose? We would choose Jesus, most likely. Although I'm not really sure if we would like what Jesus would say to us. But we would choose him because it's Jesus. But Jesus looks at the same situation and he says, I need to go so that the Holy Spirit can be in this place and can do the work that God needs for the Holy Spirit to do. So how can it be that it was actually going to be better? I mean, what could be better than Jesus? And hear me out here, okay, because it's going to feel weird, 
for me to say this because of how we view Jesus and how we view the Spirit, but Jesus knew that there were things that the Spirit could do that Jesus could not. Did he just say there are things the Spirit could do that Jesus could not? I did. I actually said that. Because, believe it or not, Jesus had to deal with some limitations that the Holy Spirit does not have to deal with. Um, Jesus was here in the flesh as a person. Yes, he was real. You could touch him, right? And that put very real restrictions on what he could do. Um, He could only teach people, for example, that heard his voice. He couldn't be in two places at the same time. Um, He could not be literally everywhere with the disciples, no matter where it was that they were going. And we know that the disciples in the book of Acts stay central for a while, but then they start to spread out. He only had so many hours in each day in which to do things, and his ministry here on earth was only three years long. And he was dealing with people that were very human. They were hungry and had to be fed. They didn't understand his teachings, no matter how simply he tried to put it. And when faith was lacking, Jesus could not reach in and change someone's heart and mind. Now, maybe you're wanting to ask the question, well, Bryce, but like, with the power of God, couldn't Jesus have done all of these things? Okay, So could he have duplicated himself as many times as possible in order to have your own personal Jesus? I'm not going to say what Jesus can and cannot do, right? But we know that when Jesus looks at this whole scenario and he's weighing, is it better for me to be here or not, what does he say? I got to go. And it's for very specific reasons because the Holy Spirit can, in fact, do these things that God wants for it to do. Remember, the Spirit is the plan. The plan was not for Jesus to stay with us. The plan was for Jesus to go and be with his Father and to prepare a place for us that he will one day come back and take us to. But in the meantime, what did God plan? for the Spirit to come and live with us. Because the Spirit can be everywhere, on duty at all times. The Spirit does not need to rest. He can be anywhere. The Spirit doesn't need someone to hear him with their ears in order to be heard. The Spirit can live in the heart and souls of God's people, many people, and have permanent residence there in those who believe. And more importantly, Because the Spirit works inside of us, it can soften hearts, he can open deaf ears, he can give strength and peace. And Jesus knows that the uninhibited Spirit of God needs to come and do these things because it is what is going to change the game for God's people. Yes, he is our Redeemer and our salvation. Yes, we need the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, but Jesus knows the next step for God's people is God living inside of them. And so Jesus says, I need to go away so that the Spirit can come. 
So how will the Spirit do these things? How will it change the situation for us forever? Let's pick it up in verse 7. Jesus says, Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So what is the Spirit going to do? Well, it is going to do some pretty important things. And the Spirit will relentlessly work to do something that we need to address here. And that is, it will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, this is not an easy task to convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And in fact, it's something that Jesus ran up against and didn't have a lot of success with. If you think about it for a moment, who did Jesus, what kind of person did Jesus have the most success with when he was here on earth? What kind of person? The sinners and the outcasts, but more importantly than that, those who knew they were a sinner and outcast. Who did he have the least success with? Those who believed, what? That they were right. Those who believed they were right. So when Jesus says that the Spirit is going to convict the world of all these things, this is a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal. And here is, is one of the reasons why. We do not often see ourselves as people in the same way that Jesus would see us. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, again, uh, Tim Woodruff in his book on the Holy Spirit said this, if we are broken, we are not very broken. If we need fixing, it shouldn't take much. A little teaching, a bit of moral fine-tuning is all we require to find our way again. We are at our core good and wise. Given a choice and the proper incentives, we'll do the right thing most every time. This is a reflection to a degree of how we see ourselves and others. And when we looked at the scale earlier, that's on this end over here, right? The world isn't great, but it's not that bad. People make mistakes, but they're still basically good. This is how we would like to see ourselves. Now, does Jesus see us the same way? No, I don't think that he does. Because in the eyes of Jesus, humanity is irrevocably broken. And badly. In fact, we are not just broken. We are broken and bent. We don't resemble much of what God envisioned when he breathed his life into us. 
If you read Paul in the book of Romans, he talks about just how awful we can be. It's a real good pick-me-up if you're ever feeling down. And he talks about how just normal kinds of evil aren't enough for us, so we invent new kinds, new ways to turn away from God. If we look at ourselves this way, and we recognize that Jesus sees us basically boiled down to we are people in need of a Savior. We are not capable of saving ourselves. And we see ourselves as being, well, we're pretty okay, though. Yeah, I need a, sa- yeah, I need a Savior. But really, I'm kind of all right, you know. I don't do that much, that many bad things. And this last week, like, I was, I get a pass because of the fire. There is tension between those two things. And when we see that tension, we recognize that one of the biggest struggles for Christianity is to convince people that they actually need Jesus. That they need him. That they're not just okay that there is something in them that needs to be forgiven and loved and restored and made new. We made this a value on purpose at this church. Jesus changes, the love of God in Jesus changes everything. And our grow value says he changes the way we see ourselves. And what does he change about the way we see ourselves? He helps us understand that our greatest need is to see ourselves as we actually are. People who are broken, but who have a Savior. Do you you see that? People who are broken, but have a Savior. So the Spirit is going to work to convince the world of these things. First of all, sin, all right? There is something wrong in your life, period. There is. Jesus speaks loudly to the problem here. The Spirit will convince of sin because the world doesn't believe that it's actually that bad or that it has real problems. The world doesn't believe in their need for Jesus. It's the reason, well, actually, maybe that message was hitting a little bit too close to home. They don't believe that they need him, or is it that they don't want to need him and they don't want the redeeming work that he will do because we don't want to be confronted by what is wrong with us? Uh, I've got a really great, you know, um, outline for you to make new friends. And the way you do it is you approach someone and you tell them what is wrong with them. I suggest you start with physical abnormalities. You know, if the haircut is weird or, you know, their eyebrows are uneven or maybe one ear is higher than the other, um, point all those things out first. 
the Spirit is going to work to relentlessly convince the world that they have a real problem, a problem that they cannot overcome on their own, that the world is drowning in sin and that there is only one thing you c- that can change it, that every time you lie, cheat, steal, lust, have envy, have hate, that all these things add up to a situation that you are not capable of changing or fixing for yourself. That these things exist inside of you. And though you may cut down on some, they are still there. But I only have a little bit of cancer. The second thing is that the Spirit is going to convict the world about righteousness. That your good is not good enough. I don't care who you are. I don't care how many charities you support. I don't care how nice you are. If you feed animals, that's wonderful. If you do all of these things, I don't care because your good is not good enough. Your goodness is not good enough for God. You cannot talk your way around this. There is no, well, I'm a good person. And the reason why that is, is because no amount of good deeds is going to fundamentally change who I am. Jesus lived in this culture amongst people who believed they were making themselves right and making themselves better and that all the good things they did counteracted all the bad things they did. And as long as they did all these good things, then the bad things would be taken care of. And yet Jesus lived a life that was radically different than all these people who did all these good things. He was homeless. He spent time with the worst sort of people. The worst sort. Those people that the good people would never be around because just being around them was enough to make you bad. He lived his life in a way that those who were striving for their own goodness would never live. Because many think that their righteousness is enough, but Jesus calls those who follow him and who want to be with God to a higher standard. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And this statement on behalf of Jesus was intended to be a shocking statement because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, their job was to do everything right. And Jesus says, unless you're better than those who do everything right, it's not good enough. So be a good person. (laughs) Do good things. Feed animals. (laughs) Whatever it is, do these things, but understand that you do not make yourself right. And thirdly, judgment. That you must separate yourself from this world. This world is not going to get behind you when you say that you need to not be about all the things that the world is about. The prince of this world, he says, is condemned and he is just trying to take you down with him. 
Remember, what is it from the story? What is it that Satan wants the most? He wants separation between you and God. He wants you to choose something else, anything else but God. Just because the culture around us says that something is true or false or judgmental or intolerant, this does not make it so. And that is perhaps a great irony of what we see here is that Jesus says the world is being judged. The world is being told that it is wrong. That it has sinned, that it makes mistakes, that it cannot make itself right. And the world will look at those who claim Jesus and say, well, how can you be this or how can you be that or who are you to tell me this or that or the other? But the truth is the world is in opposition to God. So everything that Jesus is saying about what the Holy Spirit is going to do sounds, let's just be honest, okay? On the surface, it sounds bad. The Spirit is going to convict the world of sin, of its poor definition of righteousness, and it's going to judge the world. And I hear those three things, and it takes me back to this whole scale of things, and isn't this what people most complain about when it comes to Christianity? That we're telling people they're wrong. And that we're judging people. And that we're doing all these things. Well, remember, though, remember, what is the job of the disciples? What is the Spirit going to empower them to do? To, you right, remember, testify. Testify to the truth. Tell who Jesus is. And here's why this passage for us this morning is such good news. Who does the rest? The Spirit does. The Spirit does the rest. The Spirit softens the heart. The Spirit prepares those who are going to hear the gospel to receive it. And if they will be brave enough to stand up with the Spirit of truth inside them and to say who Jesus is, then the Spirit will work in the hearts of those who hear. So here, church, as we finish this morning, is where we need not be confused. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. It's not bad news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news because it says that if you are willing to understand that you make lots of mistakes and if you understand that you can't be good enough and if you understand that because of all this, you are on the wrong side of God, then God has done everything to bring you to the right side. God has done everything to bring you to the right side. 
because the world has made God its enemy, but God loves the world so much that he sent his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The world may be wrong and it may be away from God and it may have lots of problems, but God does not hate the world. The world may not want him. The world may reject him. The world may kill his son. The world may ostracize all of those who follow him. But God loves the world. And we, as those who are followers of Jesus, are called to stand up and testify to the truth. And what is the truth? That God loves us. That we are sinners that we are sinners, that we cannot make ourselves right, that we find ourselves in opposition to God. But God has saved us through Jesus. Church, I am broken and bent. There are times where I feel like all the pieces of my life can't be put back together. I make mistakes so often that I often don't feel like I'm doing anything right. But guess what? None of that defines me. Because God loves me. And he loves me knowing that I'm a sinner and knowing that I'm broken and seeing all the pieces. And God gives me the opportunity to be whole again, not through my own doing, but through his. And that is not only good news, it's the best news. Amen? Let's pray together. Holy Father, we want to communicate the truth about Jesus to this world. God, we recognize that communicating the truth about Jesus may put us on the other side of people. God, we want to say the right things. We want to do the right things to move people. But God, help us to recognize this morning that our job is to tell the story of a God who loves this place and loves these people and wants them to be saved. And God, help us to understand that it is not our words that changes lives. It is your Spirit moving, changing people's hearts and minds that makes a difference. And God, we want you to make a difference. We want you to make a difference in the lives of those that we have the opportunity to speak the truth to. That their hearts will not be hard, but that they will be open to the fact that you love them. May we share the best news with all who will hear. And may your spirit give us not just conviction of the truth, but great, deep, and overwhelming love for those that you love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
you have any needs this morning for prayer or encouragement, you want to know this God who loves you in an amazing way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.